This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and I'm joined by Dan from Shares. Hi. So this week we're going to talk about how robots can manage your money and what mini bonds are and why they've hit the news again. We're also going to look at university tuition fees again, so we're going to cover off some of the stuff that we didn't get a chance to go over in last week's episode. This week we're joined again by Andy Bell, Chief Executive of AJ Bell. Hi Dan, hi Laura. So first up, Dan, let's have a little update on what's happened in the markets this week. It's been pretty good if you've been invested in the stock market. The FTSE's been slowly sneaking up this year. Uh, Best performers so far in 2019 include tech firm Microfocus and house builder Persimmon. Both those are about 25%. That's not bad. Wow, that's pretty good considering we're only about six weeks, seven weeks into the year. It's very good. Some of the worst performers are Holiday Group 2E, and that's down about 27%. Um, It's kind of talking about selling holidays, but it's just doing them at lower prices. So I, I guess for the general public, that sounds like quite good news. Maybe it's time to go off and rule book a new holiday if they're all going cheap. I, re- I did read something today that said that holiday bookings are down because oh. of uncertainty about Brexit. So people are worried about booking a holiday and then having problems travelling to Europe immediately afterwards. So that's not good news for TUI either, is it? No, I guess not. No. Great. A nice sunny outlook this week. I like it, Dan. Yes. So last week we talked about how you can use a junior ISA to save for your children's university fees, but we didn't cover the whole complex topic of student loans. So, Laura, you're going to tell us all about that now, aren't you? I mean, I can't promise to tell you all about it because it is the most complex topic and this podcast is not going to run to three hours. So I'm going to give you the highlights and then direct you to places where you can read more. Um, So yeah, last week, for anyone that didn't listen to last week's episode, um, we talked about how you the average student debt, according to the Institute of Fiscal Studies, um, is £50,000 for graduates leaving university. That's obviously the average amount, so some might have more, some might have less. Um, But now we wanted to talk more about how the student loan system actually works. What we're going to cover is anyone who has student who went to university from 2012 onwards. Before that, the student loan system is different. Tuition fees were different predating that, and the interest is different. So this isn't relevant to you. It's only relevant if you went to university 2012 or after. Okay. Um, So the main question that we have is whether it's wise to pay off your student loan once you finish university or if you have the money at the start of university, not take out that loan in the first place and just self-fund through university. The the big issue to this is there's no easy sum on this. There's no way of doing a quick calculation and working out that you would be better off or you wouldn't be better off. It's all based on what you earn and what you're likely to earn in the future. So it's a bit complicated. Probably if we start with some easy facts. So the interest rate charged on um, these student loans is 6.3% at the moment. Um, You accumulate interest while you're at university. So from the moment that loan payment is made to you, you get charged interest rate um, at the highest rate of 6.3%. Then once you're earning, that interest rate varies according to how much you earn each year. So if you earn £25,000 or less, you only pay 3.3%. at the moment, and then that rises to 6.3% when your income is £45,000 or more. I say at the moment because that interest rate is linked to the measure of inflation. So as inflation changes, that interest rate will change once a year. Are you still with me, Dan? Yes. Good. Um, 
if you're avoiding the student loans company or you're dodging their letters or you haven't updated your address, then you go on to a default interest charge regardless of what your um, income is. And that's the highest rate, which is 6.3%. Um, so how you repay your loans, you pay 9% of your earnings above £25,000. This, that £25,000 threshold is actually rising in April from the start of the new tax year to £25,725. Very precise amount. Um, so the interest that you're paying doesn't change your monthly payments. You will pay 9% of your earnings over that £25,000 regardless of what the interest is you've accumulated on your loan or what the size of your loan is. Um, so it effectively works a bit like a tax. It's a bit like a an addition to your income tax rate, basically. Um and then the crucial thing is that your loan is wiped out 30 years after you graduated. So even if you haven't paid back a single penny of your loan, it will get wiped out after that 30 years and you won't owe it anymore. So 6.3% seems quite high rate. I guess if you had a personal loan, you'd want to be paying that off as quickly as possible. But with a student loan, do you, is, that, is that a figure that, which is going to worry people or not? I guess. So there are different camps that look at this. I've not entirely decided which camp I lie in. Some people say that you should just view this as a graduate tax, an additional 9% on your earnings for 30 years, and that's what you pay for being able to go to university. Other people say that the average of £50,000 worth of debt at a 6.3% interest rate is scary debt levels and that that worries them and that they want to try and pay it off early. Um, but effectively, your interest charged only matters if you're going to pay off the full loan. Um, and 83% of graduates will not pay off the full loan within 30 years. Wow, that's very high, isn't it? Isn't really it? high. So, But some of those will get close to paying off the loan or some of them will pay off the total sum of their £50,000 loan, but they won't pay off the loan plus the interest, if that makes sense, within that 30 years. So if you never earn more than £25,000 throughout your career, then you won't pay a single penny of your loan off. But if you earn £45,000 or more and you're a consistent high earner through your career, then you're going to be in, in that smaller percentage of people that will pay off their loan. And it's those people, so those higher earners, that will ultimately pay off the loan that need to be worried about the interest rate. And it's only that group of people, really, that should consider early paying their loan or self-funding if they've got the money available to them. Um, because the big thing is, once you've paid off your loan or paid off a chunk of your loan, you can't get that money back. So if you think I've got £10,000 to spare and I want to cut down on, on the debt that I've got, the student loan debt that I've got, I'm going to pay off a chunk of my loan, you can't then at a later date when you want access to that money, get that money back or put your loan payments on hold. That money is gone. Okay, so if you, if you had um, or your parents had saved up for student uh, sort of costs in anticipation of this and um, they put that money say into a savings account and, and then you actually choose just to use the student loan system um, none of this um, in terms of repayments is, is means tested isn't it it's all to do with the, your earnings it's nothing to do with savings That's yeah the, it's yeah. all based on your earnings and so it's quite tricky to know at the start of your career whether you're going to be a consistent high earner there's certain careers that you go into where you know what your career expectations are going to be and you know that you're going to get decent pay rises each year and so those people it's more clear cut it's if you go into kind of an 
an average job with an average salary, you might end up having a series of great promotions or change career and, and your salary might go up massively and then you'll be in that camp of people that are going to pay off the loan over the long term and so maybe you should think about doing it now. Or likewise, you might be in a high paying career initially, but then take a career break, go on a, on a gap year or take a, a break to have children and then you won't be paying anything in that period. So this is why it's so complex and it's so tricky to work out in your own personal circumstances whether it's better to repay that loan or not. The other thing that we should probably talk about is that this is debt, but it's not the same as credit card debt. If you if you lose your job or you have no income, you don't have to pay this debt back. So it's not the same as if you had a personal loan. Um, it's obviously, it's quite expensive at 6.3%, but it's not as expensive as some credit card debt or personal loan debt. And, um, and if you were to go, say, make an application for um, a personal loan or a mortgage or something, do they take student loans into account so mortgages is the interesting one so they don't take the debt that you've got into account because it doesn't work like a normal debt however it will damage your finances maybe that's too strong a phrase but in terms of the affordability because this is an additional this is a nine percent of your salary over twenty five thousand pounds that's coming out and so in terms of you being able to afford a monthly mortgage payment it's going to affect those measurements that the mortgage companies do in the same way that if you've got another fixed amount coming out each month so it won't necessarily affect how much they'll lend to you but it will affect their assessment of what you can afford to pay each month in a mortgage payment where, where would you go to get some more information because this clearly sounds like a pretty complicated subject matter um, should you be going to the student loan company for information or is there a better source do you think you can go to the student loans company in terms of um, if you haven't got a grasp of how much you owe, if you haven't contacted them to um, get the right address, if you have any questions in terms of the interest rate you're on, things like that, you can go to them. Um, in terms of more kind of objective guides on whether you should repay early and how the debt works, um, Money Saving Expert have done really good stuff. Martin Lewis is a big advocate for referring to these student loans as a graduate tax rather than a debt or a loan. Um, even if you don't necessarily agree with that stance, they've got really good guides on their website to how this works, but also guides for pre-2012 loans, which we haven't covered off here, if this has kind of piqued your interest in what you're paying and how and how your loan works. They've got some good guides to that. Okay, good. So then also this week, we wanted to talk about mini bonds. So they're an unregulated part of the bond market, and we've had some high-profile fundraisers over the past few years, but also some high-profile failings. So, Dan, should we be buying into them? Well, I think it's quite important to understand what a bond is, because... Um, it's one of those terms which is used so widely and perhaps a bit misleadingly. Um, if you go to your bank or building society, they may offer you a savings bond. Um, and essentially, that's just a savings account. And, and that money would be um, covered if, if that bank or building society went bust by the financial services compensation scheme up to um, it's £85,000 per per bank or building society. Um, but then if you, if you mess, invest money into uh, a government bond or a corporate bond, which is... Uh, lend, you're lending money to the government or, or to a business. Now, they're not covered by this compensation scheme. These are actual proper investments. Um, when it comes to um, wanting to sell 
any of those, you, you can trade them in the market. Um, you either buy a corporate bond through a, like an exchange, like the London Stock Exchange runs the Orb platform, um, or you buy them through a bond fund and gilts you can trade quite regularly. When it comes to mini bonds, um, Basically, you buy them for a fixed term. You're stuck in them. You can't get out. And so this is this is one of the key problems: is that people um, are attracted to pretty. You know, quite often they're they're advertised for sort of say seven or eight percent interest rate, and they think, oh god, this is this is brilliant compared to what I get uh, on a sort of a cash savings account. Um, but they don't understand that there's they can't get out. Say halfway through, something happens in your life, and you want to get hold of that money. Um, and it's a bit of a problem. I don't think that they're clearly marketed in terms of the risks. And the other thing to consider is that um, quite a lot of the people offering these mini bonds might just be small businesses. And so there is a risk that these companies um, could go bust and you don't get your money back. Um, so you have to think, is 7 or 8% interest, is that a high enough reward for the risk I'm taking. Um, now, you need to look at them on a case-by-case -case basis, but in general, I would suggest it is not enough money, not enough reward for the risks that you're taking. So I guess the big issue with, with bonds, and with particularly with mini bonds, is who's issuing them. So how reliable and, and financially sound that company is that's issuing them. And mini bonds over the years, they've had quite a few eclectic, weird and wonderful iterations of them, some from from kind of big companies that then offer you discounts and perks as part of the mini bond and some from much smaller, probably slightly less financially sound companies, right? Yeah, so we, I mean, th there was a, a, a very <coughs> recent, uh, there was a recent example with London Capital Finance, um, which has gone into administration, which has left uh, 14,000 investors what, kind of wondering what's what's happened to their money that was invested in mini bonds. Um, if you go back a few years ago, there was a business called Square Pie, um, and it was like a food business that was running restaurants and trying to put pies into shops as well. So they were offering 8% interest. Um, you know, Investors were told that, that, that the money that they would put up by investing in a bond would go towards opening new sites um, and getting products in more supermarkets. But um, unfortunately, the company went bust. Investors lost their money. Um, and, and it was a it was a nasty situation, but the, unfortunately, there there are multiple examples of these going on. Where um, I, I guess it's you know, something that may sound attractive and exciting now. Um, you have to think: Well, is this just a fad? Um, so tr you know, trendy bits of food and stuff, uh, trendy types of food. They may not be trendy in a couple of years' time, which would leave. Um, the projections by a business when you invested the bonds um, may become completely unrealistic. So I guess with investing, personally, I, I would look to put it into something, a, a much more established business um, with a very long track record of um, you know, earnings growth, not something that's simply been around for two or three years um, and that just might be topical at this time. And I think this is partly the issue because people hear bonds and they think, oh, that's like the lower risk end of the investment market. So this must be fairly safe and it's offering a great return. So I should go for it. But the big things to remember are that it is high risk, that it's not you're not going to be compensated if, if it fails. I looked at some examples just before this podcast um, and some of them had like a chat forum and you could, all the questions are, I want to get out. I want to, how do I get out? And no one's responding. And I came across another one which was offering 8% um, interest 
uh, over four years and you'd get a free meal. This is a restaurant company, free meal every week with it. I mean, and I think, I guess, if you add up the cost of a meal, you might think, okay, well, this is worth it. That plus my 8% is, is good compensation. But I thought, okay, I want to know more about the business apart from just some headline figures. Um, there is a presentation on its website, but you you can't access the investor presentation until you've made an application for the investment, which I thought was absolutely... That immediately seems fairly dubious. I think that was... It was it, totally bonkers. I mean, that to me, it's like you, you don't... You have to ask the question: Why are they why are they stopping you from seeing this information? Um, it might be that you, they you want you have to fill out your details, and you might see it before the point in which you hit your you know put your bank card details in or something. But um, maybe they just want to your name and address for a mailing list. But it, it, it's that sort of stuff. If they're not making it totally transparent for you, I would run a mile personally. Um, it, it's. It, Mini bonds are highly illiquid things, um, and I don't think that they are suitable for a mass market unless you fully understand it. And finally this week on the podcast, uh, there's been a boom in recent years of so-called robo-advice services. These are kind of like automated investment services where you bypass a financial advisor and you just do everything online. Um, you sort of fill out a questionnaire and the, the robo-advisor will, will direct you to invest in a specific fund or portfolio funds that, are, that they think are appropriate for your risk tolerance. Um, so this has been a booming area of the market and typically targets first-time investors and those new to investing. So Andy, how do you view this sector? Um, you, you've probably got to track back to maybe 2014 when legislation banned commission um, so advisors couldn't take commission anymore. What that did, that drove the um, e the big banks stop giving financial advice. That meant there were quite a lot of customers who were left uh, without access to to financial advice on on the high street. So these robo advice services have, have built up, and I think that they are. Um, I, yeah, the word advice, I think I, I would probably use with with some with some caution because I think there's you know I think they're trying to equate it to the relationship you would have with with an advisor but clearly you know if you've got a financial advisor a big part of that relationship is a, is a human one it's one where they get to know all aspects of your um uh, of your needs your objectives your uh, your risk appetite um and then come up with a solution for you maybe wider investments as well whereas robo advice really is about going through an automated fact find somehow trying to determine your risk appetite, uh, and then putting you into typically a standard portfolio of, of funds. Um, now, the surprise for me is that I, I would have expected to be a bigger differential in the in the cost of robo advice and the cop of you know, the cost of human advice, because it feels like there's a, a clearly margins there to be had. But I think the problem is these robo advisors in the main are startups, therefore they don't really have the um, the money behind them to actually you know we'll build some scale up, but we will charge an awful lot less than what a financial advisor would, would typically charge, certainly as percentage of, of the funds. So I think that has been one of the challenges of, of, of robo-advice. So as a result, none of them have really hit scale yet. Quite a lot of them, um, if, you, if you look into their accounts, they're not they're not making much money yet. I think some of them are on a, on a pathway to maybe get there, but it is very much a, a fintech 
um, world where you're talking cash burn uh, and money raises, different phases of, of, of raising money in, 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 into these companies. And we've seen one or two of them now end up, uh, probably not surprisingly, uh, in the arms and in the clutches of, of one of the big financial services companies, typically the insurance companies or the, or the big asset managers, where the asset managers and, and insurance companies sat there thinking, you know what, I'm not quite sure how we're going to take on this this new world to to advise the uh, either millennials, uh, and therefore maybe the easiest thing is to go and buy one of these firms already out there. So if you ask me to call where the market's going, and quite a lot of these firms will end up under the ownership and under the stewardship of of, of the big institutions, more the household names, and that could then end up um, mopping up that that market that the banks used to. Um, deal with and actually it might be the banks who buy them as well so some of these you know when, if you actually look when people are looking for advice and, and to give the hard-earned money it's not so much it's not so bad if you're starting off um you know when you just start to invest 10 pound a month or 100 pound a month then you're not too worried about whether the the robo advisor is still going to be there in five years time but if you're transferring 10,000 or 20,000 pound to them then you should really be looking at you know the due diligence um pieces that anyone would look at in an investment platform, are they financially strong? Are they going to be around uh, in, in 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 three and five years' time? Uh, so you know that that you market, I think, I think will develop. I think also you've got as well as robo advice. So that that your robo advice, you say, it takes people through, and you end up with a, with a standard portfolio, and that effectively is run by a, a team who work for the robo um, for the robo advisor. But what's the difference between robo-advice and just giving guidance on investments? The interesting development for me now is really coming from the platforms. And not just ourselves, you know, there are there are others out there where there's almost a new term called robo-guidance coming up. So the difference in guidance and advice, advice is where someone is, 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 is doing a fact find, finding out your circumstances, giving a personal recommendation, and actually they're on the hook for that advice, saying actually, you know what, if it goes wrong, you can sue them. Guidance has always been um, in our world where we'll we'll put together a research list or a recommended or, or a suggested portfolio. Maybe not recommended is the wrong word because it's not a personal recommendation. We're sort of saying if you are of this risk appetite or if you are looking to uh, to grow over this time frame or if you're looking to retire and decumulate your your pension pot, then you might look at this this model portfolio. The difference and, and you know, the outcome really is not massively different here from robo-advice, except you don't have the legal recourse if something goes wrong. Uh, and typically the the guidance, the robo-guidance is, is not charged for by the platform. You will pay the platform, the normal platform charges, uh, you will pay um, the fund charges, uh, but there will be no advice charge. So normally you'll find the robo-guidance solution is cheaper, but you don't get, it's not that personal recommendation. People need to understand the difference. And I, I know for a fact from speaking to the FCA, they do grapple with the, the the customers and the consumers interpretation of the word guidance and the word advice people almost put more store in the word guidance than they do in the word advice they you know they, they would see guidance as come on i'll hold your hand and take you there whereas you see advice i'll point you in that and in that direction and show you where to go and actually in reality it is different because advice is is the you know we're, we are taking responsibility for 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 taking you where you're going and guidance really is more look if you go in that direction you'll probably be able to put together a portfolio that someone in the industry would look at and say yeah that that looks quite sensible but it's not what a financial advisor would give you and then you've got the other end with a financial advisor i do i do believe that still for those people who can afford it 
having a financial advisor is is the best way forward. They will understand your your wider needs, and it's not just an automated solution. They'll they'll overlay the 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 personal requirements. You can't you can't segment the whole of the UK investing population into five buckets, which is what unfortunately um, the the robo market tries to do. It's a good start. It's not a bad solution, but I would still you know. If, if I had the choice, uh, you know, and I was out there looking to invest, you know, maybe a bit north of twenty, thirty thousand pound, I'd be trying to persuade myself. Hey, let's find an advisor who who uh, can do it for a cost that makes sense. And a lot of this stuff is for for these first time investors. So I've definitely got friends who are bal- below the threshold of investing for a financial advisor. They're not quite at that level yet, um, but they want to get into investment, but they don't know anything about it. I mean, clearly they've not been listening to me in the pub, but they don't know anything about it. And so they see the marketing from these robo advice firms, and they see the kind of handholding that's um, throughout that process as useful for them. So do you think it's a case? of the rest of the investment industry and, and platforms like AJ Bell doing more to help those first-time investors? And, and do you think they've already started to do that? I definitely, I would say that that's our biggest focus at the moment. You know, I think we we segment our our target customers um, on, on, on the AJ Bell Invest side into confident in control, uh, hungry for help and nervous newcomer. And the confident in control really are the people who know what they're doing. We don't. We're not talking about those people here. We are talking about the nervous newcomer or the hungry for help. And they could both be coming in with a very small amount of money. But I think if you put a service, I think, I think platforms nowadays are no longer that big warehouse of funds and shares. You can come in and you walk along with your shopping trolley and you you put some funds in and you put some shares in. You check out and you're off and going. It, it's far more about the investment solutions on offer and that. To me, is, is is where the game is being played at the moment in the investment plat in, in the investment platform space. It's who can put that, and we we can learn a lot from the the robo advisors. They, their user experience is very good. Um, some of the things they do makes you makes absolute sense. Not all for me personally. You know, I think that some of it is a bit gimmicky, uh, but actually, in, in the main, I think this idea of helping people making that journey, acknowledging the fact that you, the fact that in the main people would rather be out gardening or shopping or doing something else than looking after their investments. You've got to start with that assumption, but you've got to take them on the journey as quickly and easily as possible without being seen to you know, lead them somewhere where they've got no idea where they're going. And as we know in investments, you know, the value goes up and goes down. And you know when it goes down, you get a different reaction from people. So it, it's not just as simple as, as making it as easy as possible. Click here and you've got your portfolio. I think there does need to be a bit of a, you know, of a process behind it. I guess you know markets do go up and down, um, and it's perhaps it, you know, the robo advice sector is quite an easy target for people to criticise. Um, but I guess it's it's still are they are they offering the right products to to, to people? Are they're not really looking at the whole of the market, are they? That is that that's what a financial advisor might do. Personally, I think the real challenge. If I was going to say to someone going into that world of looking to invest, is that what you can't do is predict invest. You can't predict investment returns going forward. What you can do is look at charges, and uh, you know, it's the old adage on investments: if you if you minimise the charges, you will improve your investment return. And assure you, as long as night follows day, and and I think that is and the market so the industry is not particularly great at explaining its investment charges, and the more regulatory invent intervention on that front the more complicated it gets but actually most of these robo advisors and most platforms now you can go and look at, at what the charges are it's normally expressed as a percentage of of the funds and typically you're looking at the percentage 
it's called an OCF, an ongoing charge figure. You know, it's a horrible acronym, but that is the really the underlying costs of the funds. And then often you'll have a management charge on top of that. So in the main, you're looking at, at two charges added together. Um, if you, you know, it could be I'm, I'm not going to give a figure now because it could it could get to anything, and some of the some of them are actually quite expensive. But if you can get a feel for what those charges are, if it's getting above one percent, you probably should be asking yourself a question: Is this you know is this the right thing out there? Because if you if, if you look at some of the some of the platforms and the guidance, you can pick up a, a tracker fund or a basket of tracker funds with a, an OCF, so a charges figure of around, um, yeah, let's say sort of 20, 25 basis points. Um, so that's 0.25%. Uh, and then you've got a platform fee on top, which which will add on to that. But there's no overlaying um, you sort of management fee as well. And I, But I think one of the, because I definitely agree with you on the charges point of view, and some of the services can be quite expensive. I think if you're a first-time investor, you know that the charges are a bit more expensive, but you're happy with that because you feel like you're getting that handholding that you want, then I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that if once you've kind of gained knowledge of the investment markets and got more confidence behind you and your pot has built up more, therefore the amount it's costing you is more, um, you then move to a cheaper service. Yeah, and people talk about expensive in the terms of your percentage of fund, where actually in pounds and pence, actually you've got a strange position where the robo-advisor is losing money because he's not earning very much money and you've got the customer saying this is expensive because in percentage terms it's quite expensive but actually in pounds and pence it's while the funds are low it's not a massive amount of money so as you say in those early days actually it's about starting off getting on the investing ladder and when you've got a pot of money built up then these these things are very switchable and and you're transferable then there's a time in the future where you say now i'll go and start squeezing the costs a bit and making sure i'm, I'm, I'm saving a few quid each year on on the back of that well, how did you get into investing in the first time when you when you first did it? So. I don't know. I guess as a you know as an actuary, you you you, you sort of breathe investments from a, a very early early stage. I, you know, right from university, I, I was working within the financial services sector. So I think it was probably um, I think as a mate gave me one or two share tips, which proved horribly um, he, he sort of bad recommendations. But you know, I had a go at them. That that probably built my share account up or started the share account and then I, I probably realized over time that actually following share tips is you know you've you've it, 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 you know it's a dangerous game to do uh, I think for most people unless you've got a real interest in investing where you were my portfolios ended up now actually I have a third in direct equities were you know ignoring my HFL shares this is so I have a third in direct equities most of them blue chip, but every now and again, um, I might read a certain magazine and come across a, a certain idea that I can uh, <laughs> I can invest in. I have a third in in what's called active funds, so actively managed funds where you're relying on the fund manager outperforming a benchmark, and I have a third in what what the market knows as passive funds, where I just track certain indices, and that gives me a wide diversity of of, of investments. Um, so I'm fairly agnostic between the different types of investments. And equally, I'm sort of agnostic between a robo-advisor, a platform solution, and a, and a full-blown advisor. I just think people need to invest the money. The government will not be looking after us in our in our dotage. Therefore, what people need to do is, is do something. I think once you've done something, you know, you can always worry about fine-tuning it later on, but it's that, it's that first step on the journey that's the important one. And you've got kids. Are they interested in investing? Are they in, in robo-advisors, or would they be thrown out of the house if they were? Well, when the, the dad's written a book and it's on the coffee table in, in the lounge and I, I, I've 
tried to persuade them to read it and other than ask are they are they referenced in it and when I told them no none of them has read that book uh, <laughs> they do all have junior ices um, well, actually two of them now are full blown ices as the as they're beyond uh, the age of 18 um, but if I'm honest it's not it's not what they do you know I think they'd be far far more interested um, you know in talking about football or video games or you know Maybe if I bought them shares in Just Eat or something like that, it might it might sort of pique their interest. But no, I think kids of that age, and you know, I think it's a real problem. You know, you look at uh, your education; it, it doesn't deal with with basic finances. I know there have been some moves recently to take that into, but some of your basic life skills, such as you know, cooking and basic finance. You know, I came out of school certainly in my days; it was never it was never taught. Because I know they do try and make an effort nowadays, but I still think we're a long way off having a financially literate. Uh, a group of kids coming out of school or out of university, which you know is not good for for the long term future of the country. Thanks a lot for listening this week. As ever, you can send any thoughts or ideas you have to podcast at ajbell.co.uk. See you next week. Bye. Bye bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. The podcast talks about various money issues. Just don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. You should also recognise that how an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future and that tax rules apply. <laughs>